The following is a presentation of Highlands Church, helping de-churched people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at highlandsadventure.org. If, uh, if you're here for the first time, we really want to welcome you today. We also want to say welcome to those who are listening today from the nursing home just up the way here from Creston Village. And if we can do anything for you up there at Creston Village, you just let us know. We're on our fourth week and our final week of our series called One. As you can see, our, our image behind our one on the wall, we've been looking at the oneness of our faith, right? We've been looking at how we have one God. This last week, we had a really sad announcement about a, a great person who was in the technology industry, Steve Jobs, who died. And people have said all week long that he changed the world, and he did. I mean, the very worship that we have here would not be possible without Steve Jobs. But as, as great as the discoveries and the great of impact as Steve Jobs made on the world, there was an impact that was 100 million times more powerful, and that was when Abraham spoke to God and God said, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and that changed the whole world. And then people ever since have been struggling how to get rid of their other gods. And in the old days, they had weather gods and, and fertility gods and food gods and wine gods. And today we, we just have job gods and and, and worry gods, and sin gods, and, and other kinds of gods, right? And God still wants us to just have one. And uh, we looked at, last week, we looked at the need to be just one person, that all of us wear these hats, right? We wear a dad hat, or a job hat, or a mom hat, or, or a spouse hat, or try to be a perfectionist hat. But, but God really just wants us to be one. And the most important part of that, that is taking off the mask of our lives, and showing what the real person that God made is underneath. So today what I want to talk about is the one church. One of the things I love so much about Highlands is the number of correct theological faith backgrounds that are a part of our church background. Highlands is a Presbyterian church in its structure, but we have so many different people of different religious backgrounds. Can I just get a show of hands as I list these names? How many people come from a Baptist background? Anybody? Great. How many people come from a Mennonite background? How many people come from a Catholic background? How many people come from a Methodist background? How many people come from a Lutheran background? How many people come from a charismatic background? Your hands are already up. Thank you very much. <laughs> but seriously, we, we love this whole church that, that really breaks down the walls between churches. And, and I know that that's a different thing than a lot of churches do. Uh, I've been to new members classes in other churches before, and usually those new members classes start something like this, where they have like a piece of paper and they show that there are lots of churches out there. They usually have a kind of a diagram here of, of churches in the middle, and then somewhere in the middle of this class that you're in, somebody, somebody like me will stand up there and say, but there is only one true church. And then they usually point to their church. And honestly, when I am at one of these new members classes, I really want to know when the Kool-Aid is coming next. Sorry for that one, but, but it never struck me as correct. And I'm here to tell you that it is not correct, that that is not what the Bible says, that's not what the early confessions have said, and it's not what the Reformation has said. So what I want to do is talk about the history of this notion. You think Highlands is a new idea. It's really as old as Christianity itself. And the idea comes from this that yes, there are many different expressions of faith, and there are correct ones and incorrect ones, but we'll focus on the correct ones today. 
And yet, all of these churches are a part of what we would call the one church. And the one church consists of three things. Number one, focus on the centrality of Jesus Christ. That's a key part to the worship. Number two, correct interpretation of scriptures. That is the reading of the scriptures. And three, and this shouldn't be overlooked, helping people in the world. That you can't just be a church that stands up and just talks every Sunday, but as we saw in the introduction video, that it has to be a church that gets rid of its meetings at some point and actually goes out and does stuff. So that's the one church. And so historically, this is what it's been known as. One of our founders in the Presbyterian history is a man by the name of John Knox. John Knox was a Scot, and we're going to have our Scottish worship service in a couple of weeks. But Scott, the John Knox talked about the kirk. Could you, could you say that with me? The kirk. And, and I want you to do it again, and I want you to say it like you're clearing your throat. Kirk. That's right, Jimmy. And John Knox's his notion of the kirk was that it was this overarching church, that actually it didn't just consist of it didn't just consist of all the churches of this time, but it also consisted of people who came originally from the Jewish tradition of Abraham and Moses. They came from the Kirk. I've heard about the Scotsman and the American. The Scotsman says to the American, which, which country do you come from? The American says, I come from the greatest country on earth. The Scotsman says, I don't recognize your Scottish accent. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now about the year 300 A.D., so Jesus dies, comes back to life again, and the disciples go and start the church, and Paul goes out and starts all these incredible churches, what begins to happen, and I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, is that churches start to divide against one another. They start to develop churches and walls between each other, and we're the correct church, they're not the correct church, and this whole thing happens. Well, then a creed or a statement gets written, which we're going to look at today, called the Nicene Creed. You come from a Catholic background or Lutheran or Presbyterian or uh, Episcopalian or uh, Anglican, you probably know you've said the Nicene Creed on occasion. The Nicene Creed is sometimes called the I believe in the none, the none, the none, the creed because that's all we, we know after the first two words. But I want to take a look at this creed because it's really a good way to end the series called The One. Because I want you to see how many times the word one appears in this creed. It's really called The One Creed. Let's look at this. It begins this way, I believe in one God. We looked at that last week. There's only one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Early days, they didn't believe that the Father made heaven and earth. They just thought he made the, the heavens. The earth is a problem. But no, God made the heaven and the earth. Of all that is seen and unseen, anybody here have some mysteries of the faith or some questions in your life today? What this is really saying is that God is the God of those things, even the things we don't know the answers to. It continues, I believe in one Lord, the same, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. There were crazy ideas back in the day that, that somehow that Jesus was begotten by some maternal woman God out there. It was really crazy ideas, but I love this. This line is so poetic. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being, Jesus and the Father. There's not a God of the New Testament, a God of the Old Testament. It's one God, the Father Almighty and his son, Jesus. And then it continues for us, for us, our, for our salvation. And then it tells the story. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, became truly human. Some were saying that Jesus really wasn't totally human. He, he didn't have, to, he was sort of this image. He was like a hologram or something. No, Jesus was real, a real human. For our sake, he was crucified, 
under Pontius Pilate, suffered, death was buried. Third day he rose again in accordance with scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated. Key to our faith. He is there now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again. This is why we have this communion. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord of the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified as spoken through the prophets. Now here's the focus of the morning. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Now I wish they'd have written it differently back in the day because this doesn't help us much, this line at all. We go, what? One holy Catholic apostolic? I'm out of here. I thought you guys were weird, but no. Let me explain this. One, of course, makes sense. Holy really means of God, just of God. Catholic, in the old days, Catholic used to mean overarching, this thing, the one church. It's interesting, uh, my grandma has, uh, I go down to visit her in Pasadena. There's a restaurant there called The Best Restaurant. She said at the beginning, she said, well, we're going to go to the best restaurant. I'm like, great, what is it? She said, it's the best restaurant. I'm like, great, what's the name? The best restaurant. This is really what happened when they wrote the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church said, hey, that's a pretty good name. Let's put a capital C on it and put that name on our church. So that's how the Catholic Church came about. The apostolic, by the way, a part, a part of the one church. It's just, it's just as we are. Apostolic means what the disciples did. They listened to Jesus. They, they had miracles happen in their life. They, they had communion with one another. Our church should be a part of that lineage of disciples. And then it finishes this way. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. A lot of people have asked me, well, Graham, is it okay that I was baptized before and now I want to be baptized in your church? And I say, you, you don't need to. Your baptism in the Lutheran church or the Methodist church just took just as well as ours. But if you want to be baptized, we can do that for you. And then finally, the life of the world to come. And the last word of that is key. Amen. Now, most churches make you say the whole creed. We won't do that. But would you say the last word for me together? One, two, three. Very, very well done. Uh, One of the subliminal themes of this creed is one, right? Oneness. I love subliminal themes. I watched college football all day yesterday, and I heard about this college student who went uh, to college, and then he wrote his dad this letter. Dear Dad, School is really great, and I'm making lots of friends and studying very hard with all my stuff. I simply can't think of anything I need. Sincerely, your son. The dad writes back this. Dear son, I know that astronomy and economics and oceanography are enough to keep even an honor student busy. Love, dad. So I want you to think about a moment when the walls of church fell down for you that you felt like for one brief shining moment you were on the same team as all people of faith. It doesn't happen that often, but maybe it happened in a prayer group with you once or it happened in a meet me at the pole. It happened for me once when I was growing up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Wonderful city, uh, a a city who is really under the, the power of another church. I hasten to add, not one of the ecumenical creeds that we know. But um, we can talk about that on another day. But a wonderful uh, city, but a hard place to grow up. And so what we had in our city were lots of people who were part of churches, but small little churches, and we never really talked to one another. We just did our own little thing every week. 
So I was a part of a little Presbyterian church, and there was a little Lutheran church, and a Methodist church, and an Episcopalian church, and Pentecostal, and the Catholics, and we all just sort of did our thing. One day we decided that we wanted to do something together. And so we decided on a good Friday, we were going to do a procession through the streets of downtown Salt Lake, carrying the cross with us. Now, I'd never really been a part of something bigger than my church, but I'll never forget the power of what I experienced on on that day. Just carrying this cross, this statement of our faith through downtown Salt Lake City was, was a big statement. I mean, there was no hiding. We were pretty much out there. I remember people lining up on the sides of the street going, what are those guys about? And I, I remember we went to different churches, and I never knew the different flavors of different churches. I mean, my dad wore a very, you know, old-school Presbyterian robe, you know, and, uh, but I never knew that the Lutherans wore, were beautiful white albs. And so we went over to the Lutheran church, and he wore a big, beautiful white album. And then not too long after that, we went to the Catholic church, and the priest wore this this beautiful mass vestment, and he walked down the street with, with his vestments on. And, and then we went to the AME church and the, and the Baptist church, and they wore these beautiful, colorful robes, just powerful. Then we went to the Pentecostal church, and I had never seen a pastor wear a Hawaiian shirt before. <laughs> I was like, sign me up. This is great. But what bound us together is the same thing that binds you and I together on this day. It's the centrality of of Christ. It's the word spoken. It's hopefully expressing our faith, helping people around us in the power of God's name. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. I just want to talk about what that is like for us to think about that larger church every once in a while. First is when we talk about the church, this church, this thing. It's not a place. It's a vision for what can be. Again, I don't want to belabor a point, but we always talk about the differences of churches. I mean, here's a couple of differences you may not be aware of. For example, did you know how many Amish it takes to change a light bulb? The answer is, what's a light bulb? I like this one. Uh, Did you know how many Catholics it takes to change a light bulb? None. They use candles. Um, (laughs) This one I'd really like. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Four. One to change the bulb, one to bless the elements, one to pour sherry, and one to offer a toast to the old light bulb. But but this one always takes the cake from how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change. Change. So when we're talking about, when we're talking about church, we're really talking about the centrality of Christ. And whenever churches rise up above themselves, it really does something great. One of my favorite people who does this is Rick Warren in Southern California at the Saddleback Church. And what they did is they decided to create a, a focus of a mission for the church that was so much bigger than the church itself. Rick Warren grew up in Southern California, Orange County, and, and they went along and their church got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And But then they started to see this terrible AIDS epidemic take over Africa and millions and millions of people in Africa dying of AIDS. For a long time, they they were Southern Baptists and they were a part of a tradition that mostly focused on how AIDS was this disease of people who had not lived their lives correctly. And it 
It was this stigma, but this church decided that they were going to break down the walls and start to really reach out and help people who had this disease. I love what uh, Rick Warren said. He said this, the church is the largest distribution network on the planet. Think about that. There are more churches in the world than there are Walmarts and McDonald's and Starbucks combined. Let me read that again. There are more churches in the world than there are Walmarts, McDonald's, and Starbucks combined. The church was the first multinational global institution. And if we will just rise up and do something together, we could eradicate hunger. We could eradicate AIDS in our generation. Now, I don't know what God is calling our church to do, but we've done some good things already. We, we've helped out Second Baptist. We sent like 200 bottles of ranch to their church last week. Their pastor, yeah, nice job. They're like, now we need carrots. But um, they're, they're wonderful people, and we want to help them as they are helping us in our faith. But we focus on that together. You know, one of the great um, op- light operas growing up that I loved was that song, that movie called Camelot. And uh, Richard Harris, Catherine Deneuve. And I don't know if you remember, Camelot was about the, the knights of the round table, it was about Arthur and, 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 and the, the great knights of that table, and it was about a kingdom called Camelot. Camelot never really existed. It was just this vision for what could be. But I remember that song, really, I love that, the power of that song, where at the very end of it, it says, Don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment. That was Camelot. And if Jesus was here and thinking about that, he might say, don't let it be for God that once there was a place for one brief shining moment, that was the church, and it really did something in the world. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the church. The second piece to this, though, is the church it consists of all people of all faith all around the world. I mean, I just want to raise some statistics for you this morning that you may not know about. Um, did you know, statistically, there are 35,000 people who came to Christ in China today? Today, 35,000. Fastest growing movement of Christianity around the world is in China. There are 100 billion, or sorry, 100 million Christians in China. There is a church in Korea, actually has Presbyterian roots. The Yoido Full Gospel Church in Korea has 800,000 people who worship in that church every single Sunday fascinating. One-third of the planet is now a Christ follower, 2.1 billion Christians in the world today. But what's fascinating is that most of the Christians in the world today come from the East and Africa. It used to be that 70% of Christians came from Europe and the West. Now 10% of the Christians of the world come from our area, and 70 to 80 to 90% come from Africa and the East and Asia. It's a big thing, the church. We're not just a part of the church of the world, we're a part of the church of history. I, I don't want to throw a whole lot of numbers at you today, but just to look at this quickly, in the first century, there were 500,000 Christ followers. As you can see, the 13th century, 75 million Christ followers. 18th century, 200 million Christ followers. The church is huge, and we're all a part of that team together. One of my favorite books is the book Eat, Love, Pray. Maybe you've heard of it or seen the movie, but I love the scene where one of the main characters named Julia Roberts decides that 
she's had enough one night. She's getting in an argument with her husband, and she goes into the bathroom. She doesn't believe in God, and she goes down on her knees, and she says, Dear Lord, if you exist, would you do something in my life now because I need you badly? She leaves that place, and then she goes and she writes a letter to God. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but it can be a powerful thing. But she doesn't just want to sign the letter her own name. She wants to sign the letter by the name of other people in her life, so she writes the name of her mother there too. Then she thinks, I'm putting my grandma's name down there too. And for good measure, I'll put my great-grandma's name on there. And why don't I put the name of the mayor as long as I'm at it, and I'll put the name of the governor and the president, and why don't I throw in the pope while I'm at it? And maybe I'll throw in Joan of Arc and Mother Teresa. I mean, I need all the help I can get. I don't know where you are today, but the letter that you write to God, you can put the names of those people down. You can put the names of Paul and, and Peter and Sarah and Rachel and Mother Teresa and Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul and the pastor down the road and Billy Graham and Billy Sunday, Beth Moore. All of these people are on your team. That's the middle part to this. But the last part, and this is the part we should never forget, is that the one church, this thing, has to be focused on this thing. That is the mark of the church. There are differences, and those differences are important. But this thing has to be focused on this. And when it doesn't, it just gets distracted. I mean, there's so many things that distract the church, right? I mean, there's lighting, and, and there's, there's numbers, and technology and, and differences in how we pray and differences of interpretations. There's so many things which have distracted us. But only one thing matters, and that is the focus of the church. I heard about a little church growing up. I'll finish with this. Tony Campola grew up, and it was a little church in the suburbs of Philadelphia. It had seven people that pretty much went to this church. I mean, it was a tiny little church, but Three of those people were three young men, three boys, who went through the classes and they went to the communicants class and they became baptized in that church. There were Tony Campolo was one of them, one of the great evangelists of our time. Another little boy was a kid by the name of Dick White. And Tony went back years later to find out what happened to Dick. Oh, Dick, he became a missionary in another country. And then there was one guy by the name of Bert. And Tony wanted to find out what happened to Bert. Bert taught theology at a seminary in Africa. So Tony decided to go through the roles and go through the clerk's report for that particular year and find out, you know, what people said about that, you know, year in terms of how it went. The clerk wrote after that year, we've had a really bad year as a church. 27 people left our church. This has been one of the worst years in history of our church. We've only had three new members who were baptized, and they were just children. They were just children who changed the world. That's the church that God builds up. It's the church that God is calling us to today, and we stay focused on that. There's really nothing that can stop what God had in mind. 
let's be bound together once again by this table, which binds together all people of all faith. You are all Christ followers. And so we invite you, if you are a follower of Christ, to have this meal with us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you gave your son to a world that continually divides and puts up walls. I ask, Lord, on this day that you would help us to focus on you. We thank you that your one church is bigger than all of our little divisions. Lord, I ask that you would do something great through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Highlands Church, helping de-churched people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at highlandsadventure.org.